everyone. I'm here with Tim Gray. He's the UK's leading biohacker, and I very much respect all the biohacking he's been doing over the past years. He's very big on Instagram, and he leads the very popular Health Optimization Summit. I spoke at the Health Optimization Summit last year, and I'm going to be going again this year. And it, it it's a, an amazing summit with lots of great biohackers there. I, I'm bringing Tim on to the podcast so that he can enlighten me on what are his top biohacks and how what he does to become optimal. His Instagram, he's very popular on Instagram. His handle is Tim Biohacker. So let's get started, Tim. And my first question is, how did you get into healthcare? Mm, through sickness care, which is, I guess, a common a common way uh, for us, a lot of biohackers. Um, I started getting sick and the doctors just shrugged their shoulders and gave me more medicines. And I'm kind of like, something's not quite right here. I don't know what's, you know, like just take this tablet and you should be okay. Or, oh, we don't understand what this is or why, but, you know, kind of like, well, I go to a doctor to really figure out how to stop this from happening, not just take a pill. Um, and it, it kind of went on for like a year or so of where I kept on having things going on and they just didn't seem to know what was going on and all the tests came back normal and I wasn't. Uh, you know, from a high high achiever running multiple companies to not being able to get out of bed and being depressed and, and um, you know, getting sicker and sicker, really. And then I guess the, the turning point was just, yeah, one week I was in the doctors every single day and I got to know the receptionist by first name basis, you know, and I would I'd pick up the call and say, hey, Sue, you know, it's me. Can I come on in again, please? And I kind of like went in that day and I was, realized that when I said to him, you know, how can you help me? He shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know, Tim, we've done everything we can. And I just felt like a lost cause. So you know, on the how, way back, how old were you? How old were you at this point? 32, 33, something like that. Yeah, so 33, it's about and, and you're how old are you now? 43. 43. So it's about 10 years ago, you started to get these mm-hmm. debilitating health issues that were significantly affecting your performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, how how I mean, do you feel like you were performing in your twenties? You oh, like amazing. You good? amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm very dopamine dominant. So I chase goals like crazy. I was bouncing from one thing to the next. I was really driven. Nothing would get in my way. Whatever my goal was, you know, I was going for it. And that was building companies at the time. Um, but I kind of neglected the body. I mean, I didn't really drink enough water or proper water. I, you know, didn't get any nature. I was eating crap food and expecting to be okay. And, as you know, when you're younger, your body works a lot easier. You know, you can drink, you don't get hangovers and things like that. This is kind of a compound effect in a negative spiral of all these things that built up over the years until the, my body went, enough's enough, dude. <laughs> it's time to wake up. So that's really, I, again, part of my business strategy is always using post-it notes for everything. And I write down things, put them on the post-it notes, stick them up on the wall and figure out, you know, the root cause of a business issue. And I just did the same with my health until I realized, you know, here's all the things that I should be doing that they just don't seem to know. Um, okay. Yeah. And w- so give me some of the top things you're trying to optimize about your health. Um, oh, that's a really good question. So originally it was, it started with, I was forming kidney stones and at quite a quick rate, actually. It's one of the first things. And I had IBS because I had antibiotics for so long and I was peeing 30 to 50 times a day which is just insane and very, very stressful because you, you know, 
had to be near a toilet all times. So that should in, reduce the risk of kidney stones, I feel. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, kind of yes and no, because I mean, when, when, I, when I looked into it in further detail, yes, you're right. More water means more diluted blood, which means less chance of building up kidney stones. But the problem is, is why are you peeing 30 to 50 times in the day anyway? And that was due to mineral imbalances. As you know, certain minerals help us retain water and other ones help us excrete water. So basically, I wasn't getting the right minerals in my diet or for my water, thus peeing more. And I found out when I added potassium in, actually, it stopped me peeing so much. It helped me retain the water. Um, the irony is, is when you drink more water, you need to pee more. And the more you need to drink, the more you pee out and the more mineral deficient you actually become if you're drinking low mineral water. Um, so that was just one of the one of the things that I did. And I fixed that within three or four days. And doctors said, no, there's nothing we can do. We don't understand. Functional practitioners said exactly the same. We don't understand. And I started testing mineral by mineral, you know, the, the common ones um, to see which would affect it. And potassium was the one for me. So that was one example. And, you know, within four or five days, that was it. The issue was gone for good. Um, the kidney stones the frequent urination and then oh, the frequent, okay. as a result of that i then looked into why kidney stones actually form and and why i would have mineral imbalances and it came down to gut issues so then i started tracking the gut and looking at the microbiome and um what i was excreting in my urine to see if i had leaky gut or gut permeability issues which actually it turns out that due to liver stress you don't break down or excrete oxalates properly the oxalates bind to minerals which then dehydrate you from the inside out those oxalates then naturally form in the blood and in the kidneys which cause mineral uh, kidney stones so it's kind of like gut stress liver stress and this is from all the pharmaceuticals and antibiotics i was taking which actually then had a knock-on effect to create such a negative spiral that i was peeing so much so really it was fixing one thing at a time until actually i repaired the gut um and stopped having this issue so uh, Touch wood. So, I mean, let, let's let's go a little deeper in there. How does the gut issues cause kidney stones exactly? So, this is a again. So, when your liver is stressed, you produce different types of bile salts. Okay, and so anyway, you do. But when the liver is stressed, it creates different biles or um, less bile. So that's one thing. Another thing is is when you have antibiotics, it kills off obviously certain types of gut bacteria that often can't be replaced. And one specifically is Oxalobacter fomenges. Oxalobacter fomenges breaks down oxalates so that you excrete them properly. Now, I actually test for almost zero on that, and I've tried to find a source of actually buying Oxalobacter fomenges. You can't. There's one company that's making it, but... Um, it's very difficult to get hold of. So repopulating the gut with the correct foods, with the right probiotics, specifically based on your testing and uh, to see how to rebalance this. So that's one element. The other thing is, is because of liver stress from pharmaceuticals or day-to-day -day life, for instance, living in a city where it's polluted air and you're drinking polluted water and crappy processed food with all the different chemicals in it, stresses your liver. Your liver can't process at the rate it should do because it's having up to 100 times the amount of toxins to deal with on a daily basis than we would do in a whole lifetime, ancestrally speaking. So our livers then become quite stressed. Now, on top of that, as you know, things like MTHFR gene, SNP, or MTRR, or any of the detox genes, then mean that your liver isn't detoxing at the fast enough rate or correctly in the first place. And so for me, I actually have the double, the double SNP um, in MTHFR. Um, so therefore, I'm not necessarily detoxifying properly in the first place. So 
For me, something like having a sauna or a hot magnesium bath twice a week is imperative unless I know that those genes need optimizing with the right protocol. So on top of these pharmaceuticals, on top of living in a city with the, with the smoky air, on top of these poor foods, on top of that is the genetic component. And therefore, I didn't know, and it's the perfect storm. So that means that the liver then gets more stressed. As a result, your hydrochloric acid, stomach acid, might be down-regulated because of the dehydration, for instance, because, as we know, uh, sodium chloride converts into being hydrochloric acid, uh, for your digestive tract, which means that if you haven't got the right hydrochloric acid, you're not killing off bacteria and viruses in your gut, which means bacteria, viruses, and parasites can get into your gut, which causes more gut issues and more stress on the liver. And then it becomes this whole circular issue of where your body starts not being able to digest food properly, not getting enough minerals, starting to get things that your body can't deal with, such as bacteria and viruses. And it's, again, the perfect storm. So unraveling these things one by one and looking Actually, with the post-it notes, as you can probably tell in a, hierar a hierarchical mindset, actually, you can figure out where these things fit in together and what to do to intervene in each area, root cause. So one of the first things you did was take potassium, and you found that that helped the constant pain. Yeah. So, what, what, yeah. Yeah. What were some of the uh, other things that you did that, that really helped, that were like game changers? Um, organic acids test was number one. Um, just because that looks at what you excrete in your pee. And so that would look at things like mycotoxins or candida levels or, um, or what's happening on a gut level through to urine. So therefore, you know, uh, oh, actually, I've got high levels of yeast in the urine, indicating that there's a leaky gut, which means I should look at re -fi uh, fi fixing my gut lining. And, and that was because I just had antibiotics for so many months in a row. It basically destroyed my gut. Uh, so it's like looking at antifungal protocols, which would be number one. Um, also, testing your gut microbiome to see which bacteria are actually out of imbalance. And so, for instance, one species of um, bacteria is almost completely wiped out, and another was overpopulated, showing that there was an imbalance. Now, that actually turned out that as a result of the imbalance, I wasn't uh, not only was I not digesting properly, I meant I was fermenting foods and bloating. And then by supplementing the right probiotics and the right diet, you actually bring that balance back in, which means you're not producing so much, so much methane, meaning that you're not bloating so much. And then bloating vanishes. So again, urine, gut microbiome test, those are two things. And then there's various inter interactions that you have along the way. Do you remember... The the specific microbes that uh, were increasing the methane? Or not you're going to ask me that. Off the top of my head, no. no. Um, okay. But there are, there's like four or five particular ones that help. Right. Now, they're, hard, they're very difficult to remember. They're, they're like <laughs> weird names. They are they're very long Latin names, <laughs> most of them. But what about, did you retest to see if you were back in balance? Yeah, yeah multiple times, okay. actually. Yeah, there was, it was actually really interesting because... I tried loads of natural antifungals and I tried nystatin and fluconazole over long periods of time and things like that. And they all helped. Um, actually, it helped bring my oxalate levels down in my urine, for instance, because of candida and systemic yeast actually um, stress the liver, which means that you can't deal with oxalates properly either. Um, and by having antifungal protocol, it helped. But there was always one marker, um, which it will come to me in a minute, that was always too high in terms of uh, yeasts. I couldn't do anything to bring it down. Everything I tried would not nail it. And then I went keto for a whole year and 
going keto and starving out that bacteria actually was the only thing that brought my gut back into alignment with the excess. So, wow. yeah, so it was a long period intervention of dietary that actually was the, the, the nail in the coffin for it. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, a lot of people want a pill to fix an ill and it comes to the same with supplements. Sometimes you've got to say, well, actually it's the lifestyle element that you've got to tackle as well as some intervention. And that, that's really what, where the sweet spot was for me. What, what metrics do you keep track of on a continuing basis? Great question. Um, I was known for tracking at 35 points of data every day, and I would have a spreadsheet for this every morning. So even it, it would cover things like uh, urine, pH, um, and specific gravity for hydration levels. Um, it would be subjective energy experience, how I felt out of a one of a hundred, again, subjective. Uh, it would be basal body temperature. And actually I'd do my temperature four times a day and average it over four just to see how my body temperature was fluctuating and level. So there was 35 markers like this that I did, even the Bristol stool scale every day and how many times I went toilet. So I could track over a period of time. I did this for nearly three years. But what I found was I was hyper alert to everything. I was hypersensitive to how I felt every day instead of just enjoying the ride. And I became very stressed with tracking so many points of data. Mm -hmm. So I learned to let go of it. But what I do track continuously because it's just so easy and doesn't stress me out is obviously with my aura ring. And I'm actually just testing the uh, circular ring right now as well. Um, so... I track, obviously, deep sleep, light sleep, REM sleep, heart rate variability, resting heart rate, body temperature, respiratory rate, and these things that these rings do, which really helps me keep on track. And then if there's something else that I need to look at, such as my diet, you know, I use the Freestyle Libra constant glucose monitor and then overlay the Aura data with the constant glucose. So what are the let, – let's go to the Aura bit. What are the things that you found have improved your heart rate variability, your deep sleep, REM sleep? So the best thing for deep sleep I found is if you're exhausted, <laughs> you have more deep sleep. But the problem is is that's not a, a sustainable or healthy way of doing it. So, for instance, if you have three hours sleep or four hours sleep, the next day you have loads of deep sleep just because you're in exhaustion. So it also, if you work out hard, push really hard in the gym, your body is saying, I need more time to repair, thus getting more deep sleep. I find that um, the best way for me to optimize my REM sleep is if I'm in a blackout room, and that's the same with deep sleep as well, or if I'm testing different hormone therapies, such as at the moment I'm testing uh, progesterone and a fairly good dose of it and my REM sleep is through the roof. It's like 40% of my sleep stages at the moment. And for five nights in a row, my, my dream went was... from what, like what, what did it went from what to what? So I went from about 12 to 15% REM sleep to 30 to 40% REM sleep almost immediately. Just from the progesterone? Yeah, just from progesterone. Yeah. And my dreams oh, wow. went from being, you know, once a week to vivid dreams all night, every night. And it's, it's tapering off actually because I'm doing it for a, a whole week test. So, you know, hormones do play into our sleep stages massively, obviously. And I find that what improves the deep sleep and REM sleep in the most sustainable fashion and for health is no or zero or, or low light exposure after sunset. 
uh, and it doesn't matter what time of year it is. It's, you know, for instance, candlelight or no lights on in the house and only operating, you know, with my little LED red lights that are dotted around the house for nighttime. After sunset, that helps my sleep the most and not using devices. Blue blocking glasses are great as a, an all-rounder fix, but really you're still getting light on your skin, which obviously um, disrupts your circadian rhythm as well because our skin is photoreceptive. So complete darkness or low light after sunset. Not eating, uh, not eating food after sunset. And if you do after sunset within an hour, you know, let's think primarily, again, around a campfire, you would probably eat with your, with your friends. Um, so not too, not too late eating. Um, I find that when my deep sleep is at its best, my blood glucose is at its best average low, not super low because then my body mobilizes glycogen to wake me back up again. And so I'm in and out of the sleep stages, but when I'm in a, a good average low, um, blood glucose During sleep. Yeah. So I can, I can cross correlate the blood glucose with deep sleep quite, quite well. So for instance, last night, I mean, the night before I had six hours sleep, um, I actually drunk for the first time in a while. So I had a lot less sleep night before last. And then last night, um, I was in bed for 10 PM and I woke up at 9 AM, which is why I'm still looking a little bit dazed this morning. Um, but, um, I didn't eat last night. I stopped eating at four o'clock <laughs> and then I was in bed for nine, 10 o'clock. My, my blood glucose was super low all night, but not too low, super low. And my deep sleep was off the charts. One, because I was exhausted and two, because my blood glucose was low and three, because I didn't have any light after sunset because I just sat and read on the sofa with my Kindle. So it's very interesting. The, the different uh, impacts because I've also experimented with not eating Try, you know, not eating after sunset. And mm. I guess it, it depends on what time you're going to sleep. I do go to sleep later because um, I have to be up for some U.S. communication. So I tend to go to sleep a bit later these days. Um, but I find that if I don't eat like five hours before I go to sleep, it's not so much about sunset or not. It's mm. the amount of time before I go to sleep. If I don't eat, uh, if, I, if it's more than five hours before I go to sleep, I wake up in the middle of the night or, um, or I wake up too early. Mm. So that cuts my sleep shorter. Mm. And the reason is, you know, I'll wake up hungry a bit cause I haven't eaten, you know, if I'm, if it's five hours and then I'm sleeping, let's say for mm. eight hours, all of a sudden I'm not eating for 13 hours. Mm. Uh, I could start feeling hungry in the morning. So that's kind of, uh, I, I try to, I, I, you know, and then I, I've obviously also done eating closer to bedtime. And that, that's not good. That's bad. Mm -hmm. Meaning my, you know, my sleep mat metrics go down. I, I don't sleep as well, but so it's kind of like a sweet spot. I'm curious what you think of that. I think that if you were to change your circadian rhythm or your daily lifestyle over the space of three weeks, then you wouldn't have that issue because it's your body. It's, it shows, in my opinion, it's like you're in between two, two daily rhythms. If you're, if you eat, if you eat too early, and then you're waking too early. It's showing that the you're not aligned with the the sun in terms of your sleep process because your body is going. Hang on a minute, it's too early for uh, uh, it's. I need food, so it's say eight or seven a.m. But and, but the light is saying, well, actually, the sun's not up yet. So it's just it, for me that's a misalignment. So if you were to actually be hard and fast on that 
and have less like expo- light exposure in the evening and eat at the same time and keep that consistent for two or three weeks, you'll find that they would align. I find exactly the same, exactly the same in all honesty, because it's like, oh, oh, oh shit, my blood glucose is too low. Your body starts mobilizing glycogen, your liver starts mobilizing glycogen and wakes you up. And this is exactly what I was saying a few minutes ago. So it's just a misalignment between light and your body. And, and you can calibrate that over it. That's a definitely true. Like my body is not aligned with the, mm. the sun when the sun comes up, when it goes down. Mm. And the reason is because I don't want it to be aligned because then my time zone would be shifted too much since mm. I'm yeah. uh, in, in Tel Aviv right now. So that means I wouldn't be able to, meaning if it was more aligned, it would be, I'd probably be going to sleep at 10 p.m. and waking up at 6 a.m. Or, or even earlier, maybe 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Yeah, that's a valid point. I mean, it's the same same with me. I've shifted now because I don't have colleagues in the States that I have calls with at 7 p.m., 8 p.m. anymore. So I've shifted mine back. But you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's also if, you, if you're flying, for instance, from, from um, Tel Aviv to the U.S. For, uh, for three days, for instance, you don't want to adjust your your uh, circadian rhythm for three days it's best to trick your body and actually use the the right things to keep your sleep stages uh where you are <laughs> um where you were leaving from especially if you're going straight back to tel aviv so there are instances where you don't want to be aligned with the sun but for the for the most part you should be for, for optimal health anyway so what time do you go to sleep every night and wake up um i find about ten thirty is about right for me optimally i can i used to well until i understood all of this stuff i would sleep at 12 30 one o'clock and in my 20s i was sleeping at two three o'clock something like that i'm i'm quite light sensitive and i was watching things like 24 on the on the computer before i went to bed every night and things like that so it's like really bad um these days 10 30 is optimal for me and then you know i have seven hours 40 minutes religiously for many years now. And if I have under seven hours, 40 the next day or the next day after that, I'll catch back up to bring it to an average of seven hours, 40 minutes. And that seems to be where. Do, do, do you take naps? No, no. Once I'm up, I'm up. And when I'm in bed, that's it. And I'm, I'm gone. So, I mean, I, I think that that is better. Uh, that's definitely healthier. I've, I've done that for a while and I think it is healthier. I think that, you know, if you're traveling or uh, there's kind of three different issues for me. One is if I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working in a bunch of different time zones or I'm traveling or, uh, you know, there's some event like party or, or some kind of thing happening. Whereas, you know, it's generally people are not, it's not ending at, at 1030. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have to end at like nine or eight thirty, And then I go to, you know, I have to come back home, do whatever, and then, you know, prepare for bed. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's that's what I find a little difficult if you're going out. What do you do if you're going out? I make an exception. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't. To be honest, I don't go out. Like for instance, if I organise a dinner, it'd be six pm, seven pm, absolute latest. Um, and I, I understand that I'm going to pay the price for it. I don't let it stress me out. But seven pm, and then you're done at what time? Let's say. Well, I'll probably be done by eight thirty eating, and then you know that's kind of like three hours before bed. So, I. It, it's classed as an exception, not the rule. And I don't stress about the exception as long as the exception doesn't become the rule. Otherwise, you know, you just slip into the negative pattern. So even if you, you try to just make your social life 
build it around going to doing events earlier, going to sleep earlier. Yep. Yeah, yeah. For instance, if I, if I go on a date or something, rather it'd be four or five o'clock, take a walk, go for a bite to eat. That's it. <laughs> and right. it won't be at like nine. Yeah, no chance. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I mean, I went out, <laughs> went out after a conference I was at the weekend, as I mentioned, and um, went for dinner at 6 p.m. And then finished drinks at like 10, 10 o'clock <laughs> and then home to bed for 11, which is a late one, fairly late one. But the thing is that I woke up the next day a little bit tired because I had a little bit less sleep because of the alcohol, but still fully functional, just a little bit tired. Um, and I think, it, isn't, it, isn't it nice when you're on holiday, for instance, if, you, if people commonly go on holiday and start drinking at midday or something or other and they're still in bed for 10 p.m. as normal and you wake up the next day feeling great. I mean, really, it's the the best of both worlds, but it, it has to be the exception because I probably drink four or five times a year tops. Okay. If you, do you find if you drink during the daytime, it interferes your sleep with your sleep at night? No, depending on the alcohol, really depending on the alcohol. For instance, I, I only drink Negroni or gin and sparkling water. This is really what I drink. They're my poisons of choice. Um, okay. And if I, if I drink during the day, which is again, very, very, very rare. Um, I wake up without any effect on my heart rate variability or anything. And I think my liver's had a chance to process everything through the night. Instead of trying to detox my body and detox the alcohol, it's still doing one job because the liver's already dealt with it before you go to bed. And I think that's the same with eating earlier as well. Your body has done its digestive thing as much as it needs to before you go to bed. So it's not spending all the energy digesting and not detoxing you. So therefore you feel crap. The Joe Cohen Show is unsullied by paid sponsors. Similar to Self Decode, I'm creating this podcast to help educate and empower people with their health. I'm reaching out to all types of biohackers, health practitioners, entrepreneurs, and more to give you the most valuable information out there. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please show some support and be sure to leave a review and subscribe to get notified on every new podcast release. When you're drinking, generally speaking, you're drinking at night. I, I just never really drank in, in the daytime. It's just, yeah. And so, but I, every time I drink at night, I noticed my sleep is worse. So I decided to just stop drinking mm, completely. Mm. Like, I feel like, um, I don't know. I feel like when you make exceptions, uh, for me, I, I feel like it, alcohol is one of those things that if you drink too little, you can still have some of the negative effects on your sleep, right? It's not going to be severe, and you just won't notice any positive benefits. Mm. Whereas if you drink too much, yeah. you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna feel good and you're going to feel all happy and social mm. and whatever, you know, all the reasons why people drink. But then it's really going to affect you, right? So, I mean, I, I found ways to reduce it and significantly, but it's the question is, is it worth the, the, the temporary benefit that you're getting from it, right? The temporary high. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, having one drink, there's no point unless it's a strong one. Uh, if you're not going to feel tipsy or have a, a state from it, I mean, again, it depends why you're drinking. But even the then, time. what you'll feel it for like five minutes, maybe, and, and not barely. Maybe not if you drink it with food, you're not going to feel it. Probably well, most people. I think the the bigger question is why are people drinking? For instance, are people unhappy in life and therefore they want to feel better in the evening? better in the evening. And I think with a lot of us biohacker crowd, we generally feel great, happy, full of energy, positive mindset. We don't need to drink to feel better. Obviously, we do experiment with other 
various things from time to time, uh, often to work through stuff and whatnot, but it's not because we're unhappy, we need to drink. And I think a lot of the general pub population, and again, pub culture, especially here in the UK, is people go to work nine till five, go to the pub afterwards, drink until the evening, go home, wash, rinse and repeat, which is where I was once upon a time. And I think they drink to drown out their miserable life. Whereas us guys, you know, we're running companies, we're traveling the world, we're speaking at events, we're popping supplements, we're sharing what we're doing. We're generally quite happy and have positive people around us. And we're not in that that day-to-day drinking, smoking circle. So we don't drink for a need or, you know, for some sort of compensation. And when we do, it has to have purpose. And the thing is, their purpose is to keep them happy, whereas we have a whole life built around this. So, so I do think that there's an element of that. And it's the same with drug users. For instance, you know, biohackers are known to experiment with various chemicals and things like that. We don't necessarily do it to feel high. We do it to work through stuff or understand ourselves better. Whereas general population will take drugs just to get high because they're not so happy in their day-to-day life. And while I appreciate I'm generalizing, you know, I think this is the general rule. Um, you know, and I can speak for myself for when I was a teenager doing lots of different drugs and things because I was a grumpy little teenager that had nothing going for him. These days, it's like I don't have time to do that stuff and I wouldn't do it just for recreational purpose. So, yeah, I, I would say there's three reasons why people drink alcohol. Uh, I, I would say one is social pressure, just because if you're in a society that is drinking, you know, most people are drinking and you're like, hey, let's go to a bar. You're not going to want to be the loser and be like, I'm not drinking. Right. There's a lot of societal pressure around drinking. I think that's one. Mm-hmm. Number two is I think some people, a lot of people, I don't know which is number one or two or three. I'm just giving three reasons is that people are drowning out their problems. And that's where you get the people who are at risk for being alcoholics, I think. Mm -hmm. So people who are like, I'm drinking because I don't want to face life, that's where you have the problem of alcoholism. And then you have the people who are just drinking for a good time, for just for recreation. They're not dependent on it. They just have it as an added benefit to their life. And I think that some biohackers do that. That's why I was doing it. I was drinking not a lot, but you know, maybe once a week, whatever it was, just as uh, an, an enhancement. But the reason I stopped is because I decided that when you do something and it has an equal and opposite reaction when you're stopping it, or even worse reaction, right? So let's say you're, you know, 30% happier on alcohol for a few hours, whatever you're going to be 30% less happy the next day, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, just the way it works, uh, it causes changes in the brain that, that get, get you more anxiety the next day. And there's ways to blunt that impact. But the question is, do you really, is, is that something, you know, is that the, the kind of equation that you want? And so I've only do stuff that doesn't have a negative reaction after. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I guess I, I would like to ask you about, that um is uh what kind of things do you do that you feel like don't have do you do any is there any drugs that you feel like don't have a equal and opposite negative reaction after i mean if if you want to say if you want to be private about that you can no it's fine um i mean yeah i think that the term is borrowed energy or you know it's borrowed energy i always think it's like for instance if you take something like speed you know you have a massive 
you, your mitochondria are working like crazy to produce all this extra energy and then you have a deficit the next day. And it's the same if you do things like MDMA with your serotonin. You have a load, a massive rush of serotonin and the next day you have a big dip of it, which is why they call it Suicide Sunday uh, for, for party guys are doing MDMA. Um, there are things that can obviously help you bring those levels back up quickly, like mega dosing 5-HTP and things like that. So that really does help. And so I think there's always going to be some sort of deficit or deficiency as a result of it. And, and this is the case in most things. Um, one that I find that doesn't is uh, paracetam or anaracetam or, you know, oxyracetam or any of these. That doesn't really give you a high when you're on it, though. Well, it depends. I think that if... I'm generally choline deficient. I, and for instance, people that have uh, take one of these smart drugs like paracetams, it draws on your choline, uh, acetylcholine, which is why it helps the brain fire up so much better. I find that if I'm low in it and I don't supplement with acetylcholine, then I'll get a migraine from paracetam, which is quite common apparently. So I find that if I supplement with that and paracetam, then I don't have an issue and it's not borrowed energy. And I find that it my Again, I'm dopamine dominant, but also very high with choline as well uh, in terms of my neurotransmitters. So I, I burn through it pretty quickly. Um, I find that it works super well for me for my cognition, and I feel like I am energized from it. Whenever I take it, I notice myself bouncing down the road. My brain is even happier than usual. It's not just a smart drug for me. So I find that that's one for that. The other and there's thing, no uh, opposite reaction when you're off of it? No, none. None for me personally. Um, the other thing, the other one is if I microdose with LSD, for instance, I don't find that I have any negative reaction or loss from it. But I think that is because I only microdose with it. And what, what, what do you consider a microdose? So um, about uh, 20 micrograms, something like that. 20 micrograms. Yeah, okay. and a full dose being 200 microdose, uh, micrograms. Um, okay. So I, I would, I would, when I'm in a country where it's legal, do it every three days typically, and I find that that works. Which very countries well. is it legal in? <laughs> I can't remember now. Um, <laughs> but, um, it, there's also various other compounds that are very similar to LSD that haven't been categorized as illegal yet as well, which you can actually find on the internet. Not that I'm advocating the use of LSD by any means. Um, okay. I find that, again, psilocybin, so from mushrooms, again, that is typically legal, much more legal in many places now, especially in places like Amsterdam. What percentage, you know a lot of entrepreneurs like me, what percent of, of entrepreneurs do you think take LSD or, or psychedelics in general? The successful ones, probably 40% of them, I reckon. 40%. Yeah, a lot right? of people um, in, the, in the Bay Area, for instance, take it. Like one guy... Um, very successful, so that he takes it every day of the week, Monday through Friday, um, microdose LSD. And, and I think his micro is more of a mid. <laughs> um, and, and this is very, very common, I think. The psilocybin, again. I feel like it's more than 50%, 40%. Really? Anyway. Yeah, I would say it's probably maybe even more than 50. I, well, not as a daily thing or a weekly thing, but just people think about it. I mean, Almost everybody, I would say most people at Burning Man are mm. doing some kind of psychedelic at some point there. But there's a, there's a difference between at some point and on a re recurring basis, I think. And so you're I think, saying 40% on a recurring basis? Yeah, at least once a, at least once a week, I would say. And this is... Oh, okay. Ah, okay. So that, I would agree with you there then. We've got, we've got Steve Jobs to thank for this because obviously he talks about his trips using LSD and how he came up right. with super ideas. And obviously it was such a big 
role model, successful role model, people kind of listen to that and flock towards it as usual, the, the usual guru effect. Um, so yeah, so I find that LSD microdosing is one of those things. Uh, I find uh, anoracetam or equivalents don't have any of those issues. Um, MDMA. Do you notice the effect when you're taking 20 micrograms of LSD? Yes and no. Depends, actually. I, and I, I can't correlate what the difference is, but some diet. So, okay. So this comes from um, a friend and a speaker of, of the summit. Uh, so Dr. Jack Locker. Uh, he's a pharmacologist. He's experimented with many different chemicals. He's an expert in a lot of these things. Um, he once gave a talk uh, at Baby Bathwater, actually, about LSD and how if you look at LSD as a compound, uh, a, a normal dose, say, for instance, there's 10 chemical reactions that happen at full dose. When you half the dose, it doesn't half the chemical reactions. It actually changes the compound, actually changes how it affects the body. So when it's on a micro dose, actually, you don't get the visual effects at all. You actually only get some of the cognitive benefits, but not the visual elements. Okay. One thing I've noticed, and I, I can't, again, correlate it, but for some reason, on a microdose, one out of every 10 times, I will start getting some visuals. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And, and only very slightly, like, I'll be looking at something, and I'll be like, oh, I can't quite focus on that quite right. And, you know, it's almost like jumpy a little bit, a little bit digital. So, yeah, so... Um, yeah, and I'm trying to think if there's any others, any others that I have this uh, that aren't really borrowed energy. As I was saying, like MDMA definitely borrows; it definitely have a deficit as a, re a result. Obviously, cocaine is probably the biggest toxic thing I would ever. I would never go near it again. Did when I, I would agree? Yeah, all those drugs have uh, yeah. borrowed energy. What about ketamine? You think ketamine is borrowed energy? <laughs> Depends on the dose. I think um, actually an indicator with ketamine is is if it's good, clean ketamine then, you know, you can go to bed an hour after doing it and sure. sleep perfectly. And in fact, your sleep stages are fine. Um, I've, I've used ketamine quite a few times now. I was actually prescribed it for therapy, for a therapy. Um, and um, I find it to be very, very good. And it doesn't affect my sleep. Uh, actually, it doesn't affect mine either. It, it negatively affects. It does positively. Yeah, yeah. It, it positively affects your sleep. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. My REM sleep is up another five, four, five percent, something like that, but nothing major. But it's just more that it doesn't affect negatively. But again, it, like how frequently are you doing it? What's the dose that you're doing it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, what time of day and things like that. Right. Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's something that's new for me that I'm I'm, I'm experimenting with. I guess, mm. um, but I only take low doses. I don't think you need high doses. What sort of dose are you and taking? Uh, that's a good question. I would say, uh, I think it's like, well, the dose is also different whether you, you snort it or take it by mouth. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think I'm taking like, I don't know, maybe 30, what is it? 30 milligrams. Yeah. If, uh, if I snort it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so I, I had it subcutaneously. Um, so it's obviously right, pharma. the doses are all different depending on how you're taking it. There's one, snorting, one, just um, it, it's 100 milligrams per uh, 100 uh, milliliters. So um, I have 0.15 milliliters, which gives me 15 milligrams, but I can go up to 25, and then that's you know a nice a nice amount without getting high and off the planet. This is right. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, you're you're completely yeah. That's yeah. the thing is that 
I, I don't take large doses of it and I don't find it has any impact in my sleep. I don't know if I, I mean like, um, yeah, I, I took it last night and my sleep was very good. I, I didn't, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if it was because of that. Like it's something that I need to keep seeing, but, um, yeah, it's not a recommendation for people to take ketamine. It's just, uh, you know, we're, I would say we're uh, advanced people when it comes to this area and, and we try a lot of different things and we do it in a, in a very safe way in, in uh, properly measuring the dose exactly and we know what we're doing. I think that's that's very key. Like most people, if they think about psychedelics, it's, it's somebody's giving them a tab and they don't know what the hell mm. it, the dosage is and then they just take that tab. You you really have to measure the dose properly and you have to do it in the correct way in order for you to really benefit. I would not recommend people mess around or test even ketamine because it can be life altering. Um, and I think the only reason I did it actually was because I was with people in a measured setting. It wasn't something off the street. It was pharmaceutical quality. It was measured. I was around the right people. Um, and I was always scared to go near it because I heard of the K-hole, uh, which, you know, is a pretty nasty place to be in, apparently. Um, but when you realize that super measured dose in the right setting for the right reasons, for instance, I have it actually for migraines and it ties in um, down to the glutamate receptors and um, something that I'm working on with my gut at the moment specifically and dialing it in. That's the only reason I'm using it. And that's why it's been prescribed for me. And it's a very, very new therapy. Um, yeah. Have you ever tried mescaline? No. No. It's no. actually um, my favorite of the psychedelics. Really? So, yeah, LSD has a little bit of, I, I'll tell you, I take about 50, 60 micrograms of LSD. Mm -hmm. um, it, it depends what I'm trying to do. If it's more just for like, I'm trying to, if I wanted to take it at work or, you know, I wanted to get stuff done still, I would maybe take 30 micrograms. So n not too different from when you, what you're taking. If I'm mm. taking it um, on the weekend for recreation, then I would go to 60 micrograms. That's mm. what I found as like a proper mm. recreational dose without getting any visuals. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's below the visual threshold. I, I think if you're getting visuals, that means you took too much, which might be fine under certain settings and proper supervision and, you know, assuming you know your body well and, you know, your dosing and, and all that stuff. But for me, I find, uh, yeah, that that's the amount without visuals and that works for me. I don't like it. Yeah. Getting too much. I, I if, if I'm getting visuals, it's, it's a problem. The litmus test for me, by the way, I have an interesting litmus test. If I can't play volleyball very well, then I took too much. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, my I have like this new tradition that I do where every week, I it's I just started it. We'll see how long it continues. But every week I take on Saturday I take mescaline oh. in the morning right when I wake up. Nice. So I take mescaline in the morning, and an hour later I play volleyball. So in the peak it starts. I mean you start feeling the effect an hour later, and I'm playing volleyball. And what I found is that it actually improves my game. So I'm playing volleyball better than I was before. Nobody has any idea I took any mescaline. And the reason I like mescaline is because 
LSD has, you know, it has the benefits of, of the psychedelics, but I feel like there's a certain kind of heaviness to it. Same with mushrooms. So it's not about whether it's natural. There's a certain kind of heaviness to it, which could be interesting if you're, you know, trying to, meaning like there's, when, when I say heaviness, it's heaviness in the body, but also there's a anxiogenic and anxiety, like you, it's theoretically, you can feel that there's a possibility for anxiety on it. Right. Mm. I, I don't know if you get that. Uh, you're probably not at 20 micrograms, mm. but the mescaline has none of that. So I don't feel any heavy, like there's no meaning like the LSD. I don't feel any negative effects when you're off of it. Mm. And the, the benefit is that after 12 hours, I don't notice it. So it goes away quicker. Whereas the mescaline, when I'm on it, there's no, like, there's no possibility almost for anxiety for me. Right. Mm. And so, and, and it also lasts for 16 hours. That's why I take it right in the morning <laughs> so that I can go to sleep 16 hours later and still get, you know, full night's rest. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the litmus test is, can I play volleyball on this thing? And in volleyball, you have to, you know, you're hitting the ball, you have to do it with precision uh, it, it, you have to be extremely precise. And if obviously if you're getting visuals, you're not going to be doing that correctly. And um, I find that it actually improves my game, even at a reasonably high dosage, like, uh, you know, even, yeah, at, at a reasonable dosage. Uh, so I, I, I feel like, whereas if I played on alcohol, MDMA or, or anything else, I would be just like, you know yeah, what the yeah. hell's going on here yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm you know or we we would be the worst i think right i'd be like you know running around i don't know what would be going on but um i feel like any of these other drugs you play uh volleyball you're just you're, you're mm. gonna be you're gonna play much worse mm. yeah interesting litmus test <laughs> <laughs> do you uh do you ever do mega dosing experiments with supplements yes not not as much as you do um but definitely definitely have done with many things like what um, give me give me examples my favorite things. my favorite experiment was uh trimethylglycine like six grams before bed um right before bed yeah right before bed okay. and um i found that it worked very very well for six days and then it dropped off the face of a cliff uh, what what happened specifically was my heart rate variability doubled so there's obviously there's a whole methylation component going on here as usual. Um, and then I could then carry on with 2000 milligrams. So two grams of trimethylglycine ongoing, but then after about three weeks, it would do absolutely nothing at all. And then, you know, I'd have to wait a couple of months until I could add it in again and I'd have the same pattern over and over again. So that's one of the ones that, um, I really liked and, uh, what was another one? I feel like uh, when I added it in right before I went to sleep, it mm. worsened my sleep a little. Whereas when really? I added it in during the day, mm. it was beneficial. Mm. Interesting. I mean, because it can increase dopamine and and you know increase serotonin, dopamine, and I, you don't, you don't want your dopamine to be too high when you're it, sleeping. It really it really depends on your um, methylation uh, on, on what combination of SNPs you have. I think because right. the methyl donors for me, obviously I'm sucking them up and going, I need these bad boys. I need these bad boys, bad boys for critical processes. Whereas for you, you probably got a very different profile to me. 
So therefore not needing them for the same reasons and therefore upregulating things, whereas for me, they're actually baselining things. So I think that's probably with the trimethylglycine experiment. That could be. I mean, I, I do need the methyl stuff. I find that uh, the, the stuff that increases methylation and also there's some genes that, you know, tell me that I, I need some more stuff, uh, including mm. the M MTHFR gene and, and some other things. So I, I do well with methylation mm. supplements. And mm. what about, uh, do you do well with uh, uh, methylfolate? Yeah, I do actually, very well. I find that that's probably my most favorite one of the lot, a long term anyway. Um, but again, that can put too much stress on the body if you go too high, too fast with it. And um, What do you take there? Uh, I average at two milligrams now, but I did try up to 20 milligrams at one point, but that was just too much. I, and I noticed actually that um, it supports the liver pretty well because when I start it, my digestion changes my liver changes quite significantly but to start with my stool will be lighter more orangey and then over a period of time it rebalances and it gets darker again so it's almost like it's drawing on something in terms of detoxification which stresses the liver and then it settles and it becomes normal again so there's definitely a, a, a massive liver component for me for methylfolate specifically how many supplements do you take a day mm. Not as many as you, mate, <laughs> right now. <laughs> I saw your Instagram a few days ago, and I was just like, holy shit. Um, at one point, I was taking about 40 or 50 different supplements a day, you know, just trying all these different things and whatnot and seeing how I felt. And that was just through desperation of trying to feel better. But the more and more I become dialed in, the less and less I tend to have because you can't, you know, one supplement might be able to be tracked with what's going on, but when you have multiple or with having different effects, not only do they overlap in terms of what they do to you, they also have chemical effects across each other. So I like to go simple. At the moment, well, this week, I'm actually taking only progesterone before bed and pregnenolone on waking in at lunchtime. Um, and I take a DAO enzyme um, because I have the double genetic um, component of DAO or should I say histamine H1, H2 issues. So I take a, a, a DAO enzyme to stop with the stuffy nose and the migraines and things like that from histamines. So yeah, I mean, typically I would take about eight to 10 supplements, something like that. Um, overall. On a day. Yeah. And do you day. take, uh, do you cycle them or you just take them? Yeah. I, pulse. I like to pulse them. Um, first of all, so pulsing is in the short term. So for instance, five or seven days, of most of them so that my body just doesn't get used to having them. But in terms of cycle, yes and no. I mean, really, I only take supplements based on what I actually need opposed to subjective things. So if I'm working on something, I'll take it. If I'm not working on something, I won't. And um, usually I'm quite diagnostic with the various tests that I have as a result. Um, okay, so I know you like, uh, so you mentioned the progesterone, pregnenolone, uh, trimethylglycine. Those are some of the things you're taking. Uh, methylfolate, I feel like we already hit on four of, mm. of the ten. Yeah. What are some of the other ones? Methylene blue? Yeah, yeah, that. definitely methylene blue. Yeah, I like. I really like that. Um, I typically have had oxygenation issues, and I think that's just through a lifelong um, being breathing through my mouth my whole life opposed to using my nose, and that's partly because of my histamine issues with a stuffy nose. Um, and also I had... Um, couple of root canal treated teeth here which caused inflammation in the sinus lining so not only did i have 
blocked nose. I also had other things going on there. So I couldn't breathe freely. So therefore my mouth would then be default. So that obviously then affects um, um, nitric oxide production, which vasodilation, which causes tension in the body and headaches and things like that. So by adjusting my breath work, focusing on nose breathing and using methylene blue, which helps you utilize oxygen better. This is one of the reasons why I love methylene blue. I'm actually taking a week off this week from it um, just because my uh, amylase levels were quite high on testing last week, showing that uh, something's going on with my pancreas. So I just want to drop everything for a week and just see, you know, see what's going on there. What, what dose did you take of the methylene blue? Eight milligrams, sometimes two to three times a day. Oh, wow. That's a very large dosage. Yeah. Well, the thing is with methylene blue, and it's dependent on the dose. It's very, very dependent on the dose. Every accident and emergency care ward has methylene blue on IV as part of their standard kit because of the carbon monoxide poisoning. I think it's part of the World Health Organization list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's because it's so efficient at helping oxygen utilization in the body and dealing with carbon monoxide and things like this. And I think on low dose of eight milligrams, I think eight milligrams is the sweet spot personally. And this is what the transcriptions things, um, trochees have. I actually also buy the drops, which I can buy, uh, from Germany. Um, and also from a, a compounding pharmacy from South Africa. Um, and I find it's very, very good. And some days I find that completely clear, absolutely clear, absolute clarity in other days it doesn't work so much and i find that if i sleep with the window open and there's fresh air coming in i feel better in the morning and methylene blue doesn't do anything if i sleep with the window closed the carbon dioxide is higher oxygen is lower methylene blue really helps me so for me it's a it's a good one and i think so anyone that's can't hold their breath for too long can't swim underwater for too long is using their mouth for breathing too much, then methylene blue is a, is a good try, thing to try. And eight milligrams two to three times a day? Is yeah, that, it's pretty, like, yeah. Have you tried one milligram and saw what that did? Yeah, it doesn't really do much for me. It doesn't really okay. do much at all. And I always found the difference with transcriptions, and I only use just the just blue. I don't like the, the nicotine, the caffeine, and the CBD ones. I just like methylene blue on its own. Um, the eight milligrams when I had a full trochee in one go. Was is there any... Is there any negative impacts for eight milligrams to your knowledge? Don't know. I mean, from everything I've read that the, and the amount that they use in a hospital setting IV, which is, you know, we're talking, I think it's like 150, 200 milligrams, something like that. Wow. Um, from memory, don't quote me on that. Um, makes me think that an oral dose of eight milligrams is, is pretty safe, especially if the hospital's using it. Cause usually hospitals use it at a minute amount of toxic levels by standard anyway. And and do you take that like if you have an infection or because obviously um, it has it's an antimicrobial yeah antimicrobial antifungal um, uh, potentially an antiviral as well which you can Google recent pandemic stuff online with methylene blue and some trials that there were uh, not to mention you, the name but do um, you think that part of the reason it's helping you is by combating infections in your body possibly or? yeah again because of my digestive issues liver stress and whatnot then I had been susceptible to certain viruses. Um, so it could be helping me with that. I also found actually really interestingly that because of my kidney stones and urinary tract infections and things from yesteryear, um, methylene blue helps quite a lot with that. And I think also with the, 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 the 
uh, yeast levels or candida levels, obviously your pea goes green or slightly blue. And if you're taking certain vitamin Bs, uh, then it goes fluorescent green. So you know that your kidneys are dealing with it. And it's, it's, I seem to feel great for it. Awesome. And so what else are, are you taking? Mm, you take vitamins like B12, I'm assuming? Um, I've stopped them. I've stopped that at the moment, actually. I, I usually take methyl guard by Thorn because it has trimethylglycine, methyl cobalamin, and methylfolate, the, the three together, um, with a bit of riboflaving, which I find works very well for me. Um, but I've paused that at the moment because I was actually overmethylating. And I notice this because I start getting super sensitive teeth on the upper, in the upper jaw every time oh, when I'm overmethylating. Um, and I have the same effect when I take too much SAMI, S-A-M-E, as well, which is obviously the end process of methylation, pretty much. Um, Do you check your homocysteine levels when, when, like, what's your homocysteine level? It, it's absolutely, absolutely optimal every time. Every time. I've no, never no, had. What a, is it like when you're not taking it? It's absolutely fine. <laughs> My homocysteine levels. Not, yeah. Okay, so absolutely you, fine. What, yeah. what you're saying is that you're not really able. You're saying that you're an undermethylator. You like methyl methylation, but that. Under methylation is not being shown by high homocysteine. Yeah, exactly. My homocysteine has always been absolutely textbook bang in the middle. Never too high, okay. never too low, always consistent. Does it go lower when you take too much methyl? Methylation? No, never changes. <laughs> Whatever I've done, it always stays the same. So my body is compensating or dealing with it somehow. Yeah. Because that's um, the typical textbook stuff, like how to know if you're getting if you have enough methylation hmm. based on what your homocysteine is well, like but it's often very common for girls i've seen in girls specifically where they have high homocysteine they start taking trimethylglycine and it comes down beautifully very quickly it doesn't just doesn't affect me like that for some reason but i find with trimethylglycine to go back to that um, my energy production goes through the roof and i find that you know I, I, you don't consider energy anymore it's just something you have it's not something you're deficient in anymore um, Sounds good. Okay, um, it's it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast, Tim. You had a, quite a lot of good nuggets that uh, I've been able to learn from, and some experiments that I'm going to be doing from that. I'm going to try increasing my methylene dosage, my methylene blue dosage. I'm going to try progesterone drops. See how that works out. Uh, there's some other things that I'm I'm going to try as well. But, uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Is there anything that you wanted to say before we go? Uh, yeah, come to the Health Optimization Summit next year, June 17th and 18th in London, and meet 2,000 yeah. biohackers like us and try out all the gadgets. And I'm going to be there as well. So uh, I, I obviously recommend coming. Uh, it's a great summit. I had a lot mm. of fun last year. And, uh, yeah. Um, awesome. I look forward to to seeing everybody there. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave a review and also like and subscribe for more great content.